Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, what exactly is the role of the Atlanta City Council president? And just why are there five candidates vying for the seat? We continue our conversations with all of them. Today, it's former APS board chair and current affordable housing advocate, Courtney English. Also, new research on how the timing of a COVID-19 infection could affect the severity of the disease. Check in with a researcher from the University of Georgia who worked on the study. All that's coming up. But first this, some Democratic state lawmakers will hold a hearing today regarding conditions in Georgia's prisons. The hearing will include from hearing from former inmates and families of current state prisoners, as well as legal and health experts. Now, all this stems from the Department of Justice recently announcing it was launching a statewide civil investigation into Georgia's prisons. Now, here's what Assistant Attorney General Christian Clark in the Civil Rights Department of the DOJ said. This investigation will be comprehensive, but will focus on harm to prisoners resulting from prisoner-on-prisoner violence. We are also investigating sexual abuse of gay, lesbian, and transgender prisoners. Clark went on to say the investigation is more than just verifying violations. Our investigations have been successful at identifying not only whether systemic constitutional violations are occurring, but also the root causes of any such violations so that those causes can be fixed and the violations can stop. And these Democratic lawmakers say they welcome an investigation. They admit it could take a while and they want to address the situation immediately. These are the same lawmakers that claim during the pandemic a record number of homicides and suicides occurred in Georgia's prisons. Now, the Georgia Department of Corrections denies the latest federal allegations and said it fully cooperated with the DOJ in another investigation. That was back in 2016. In other news, airports around the country, including Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson, are busy again. But there's a shortage of workers and some airport restaurants and shops have actually closed. But guess what? Passengers, they're beginning to notice. A J.D. Power study ranks airports according to passenger satisfaction. Hartsville-Jackson came in at number nine for the second year in a row among the so-called mega airports. Now, Michael Taylor with the J.D. Power tells WABE that's because Atlanta's airport is set up well to handle the enormous volume it normally sees. Considering the size of Atlanta, it's doing very, very well in the study and has been rising in the rankings in the last five years. But there's another reason, says Taylor. When you come up from that escalator off the people mover, you know, that's where the food, beverage and retail is massed. And you never really feel that far away from your gate. But like many airports, waiting passengers at Hartsfield-Jackson still have fewer shopping and food options as the pandemic drag, drags on. 
It's now a top indicator of airport satisfaction. And Taylor says leaving all these restaurants and shops to grapple with how much they can raise salaries and still be profitable is something they all have to contend with. Coming up next, a conversation with Courtney English as to why he wants to be Atlanta's next city council president. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. In case you didn't know, November 2nd, the City of Atlanta Municipal General Elections will be held. Of course, we know the big races, the mayoral contests, but there are other seats as well that are open. City Council seats, Atlanta Board of Education seats, and this also includes a City Council President seat as well. We're going to watch all of those. Now, Atlanta's governmental structure has gone through some changes uh, throughout the last I guess, 100 years. In fact, there was a time when the city had a board of aldermen. That's what they were called. I'm not saying that. And there was a vice mayor that presided over that. And if you didn't know, Maynard Jackson was elected Atlanta's first black vice mayor in 1969. Well, they all this has changed now because the charter was passed and a form of city government with the mayor having what's considered greater power would be formed. But we do have the city council seats and a council president. So, as we began our series of conversations with all these candidates vying to become Atlanta's next city council president, in no particular order, it's solely based on the scheduling availability of the candidates. Joining me today is Courtney English, former Atlanta Public Schools board chair and currently serving as director of community development for the Star Sea program. That's a nonprofit that focuses on affordable housing and wraparound community services. Courtney, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Rose. Happy to be here. Let's begin here because you have splashed across your campaign website, quote, there's nothing wrong with Atlanta that can't be solved by what's right with Atlanta. Why don't you dissect that for our listeners? Absolutely. Look, I think um, Atlanta um, right now is in a moment of crisis. Um, You know, public services, uh, gaps in city services, rather, uh, crime, crime. you know, effective or lack of effective and efficient uh, city government uh, across a variety of different fronts. And I think this moment of crisis is important in this moment of crisis, it's important for us to remember our history. And that history is simply that there's nothing wrong with this city that can't be solved by what's right with this city. When we look at the Atlanta I know and love that uh, integrated the city, that increased or created minority participation, that built uh, the MPU system, that created the world's largest and busiest Um, airport that landed the 1996 Olympics, 
that taught the world how to deal with crumbling sewer systems, pension problems. Um, look, we have a history of rising to meet big moments, rising to meet the challenges that we face. Uh, and this is just a num another opportunity uh, for, for this city to demonstrate that we have what it takes to rise yet again. When you talk about this moment of crisis and gaps in city services and crime, this is something that you see has been building or are you directly saying this is because of the current administration or the previous administration? Yeah, look, I'm not in the blame game. I'm in the fix it game. Right. And what we know is that we've seen a recent spike in in violent crime uh, all throughout this city. Uh, what we've seen, uh, we can't seem to fill a pothole to save our lives. We have trouble repaving streets and sidewalks uh, and folks all throughout this city are feeling left out, unheard and or left behind. And so I think this moment uh, requires some serious, uh, effective, competent leadership that knows how to get big things done. And I think that's what my candidacy offers. Well, when you talk about knowing how to get big things done, doesn't that include having a city council and the mayor and the, the mayor's administration all working together? You make it sound like one person can come in with the superhero cape and get it done. <laughs> no, not at all, actually. Quite the opposite. I believe that uh, this requires a, a strong mayor, a, a strong, effective, proactive uh, city council that leads with a degree of urgency. And um, that's the way I've always led. I know, uh, having led a legislative body before, I know what it takes to help elected officials get on the same page. I know what it takes to identify a, a what I call a North Star. Um, I know what it takes to then execute and bridge the gap between where we are today and where we all want to be in the future. Uh, that's the work we did uh, at APS, and uh, that's the kind of leadership that I'll bring to the Atlanta City Council. You mentioned, obviously, as an APS board member, and you were also the chair. And then I remember, I, I remember not courting, I remember all the fighting. I remember when y'all sure. took each other to court, <laughs> suing each other. <laughs> um, so no stranger to holding an elected office. You did run for city council in, in the last election cycle, but now you're back. So why Atlanta City Council president as opposed to maybe running for another district? Well, I think, look, I think this moment in time um, literally meets all of my skills, my experiences. Again, I, I think I mentioned, you know, I've, I've led a legislative body before. I've also represented the entire city. I was a citywide board member uh, before. And, and, you know, you talked a little bit about uh, the crazy times over at APS, you know, uh, the citizens of Atlanta uh, sent me down to APS to help put APS uh, back on track. And uh, ultimately, my colleagues unanimously elected me uh, to serve as board chairman. Uh, together, we increased the district's graduation rate to a record high. Uh, we raised teacher pay. We put more money to the, in, into the classroom. Uh, and we sent more kids off to college uh, than ever before. And so I believe that skill set, uh, having led through crisis, uh, having uh, led a diverse group of elected officials who are represented, uh, who are elected to serve uh, a diverse constituency and getting all those folks together and on the same page and then turning around a large government agency literally leads itself or lends itself to this exact moment that Atlanta faces. And so uh, I'm excited to offer that leadership. I'm excited to uh, roll up my sleeves and go to work for all of Atlanta. Well, the difference there is, as you all being the board entity, the superintendent pretty much worked worked in collaboration with you all, so to speak, and you all were a governing body. The difference here with the city of Atlanta, with the council and the council president, that the mayor in this form of city government gives more power and authority to the mayor. So how effective can a city council president be based on all the things you just said? 
Well, I think a few things. I don't plan on being a traditional city council president. In fact, we're going to transform what that office means. Uh, as city council president, we're going to use the office to create a policy think tank that looks at best practices and brings those best practices home. We're going to be uh, ensure that the council is operating transparently. Uh, we're going to create an equity scorecard uh, that looks at all of the major issues before council and rates those issues on their ability to create a safer, stronger, more equitable Atlanta, an Atlanta that works uh, for everyone. I will also use the power of the convening power of the office to ensure that we have access to the best, uh, brightest uh, minds uh, that are working on the issues that we face. Uh, moreover, I'll ensure that the council has access um, uh, to independent expertise um, that it can rely on instead of relying solely on the voice or the experts that the administration puts forth uh, to ensure that the council can exercise its oversight responsibility. Right now, you have a situation effectively where uh, the fox is watching a hen house. And if the council uh, has to rely on the mayoral administration for all of their information, and we're going to turn that on its head. And so uh, it, it will be a very different council presidency uh, once I'm in office. So in other words, you're going to get rid of the fox? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I'm not getting rid of the fox. I'm just going to ensure uh, that we've got, uh, th that the, the hens have all the proper tools they need uh, to keep the fox at bay when necessary. Don't think I've ever heard anyone put it quite like that, but let's shift this conversation <laughs> for a moment, Courtney. Let's talk about then city legislation and equity. All right, you know, let's start with education for a moment because you know it's clear that whatever legislation is passed through the city council, and I know that the city council president does not have a vote, but whatever legislation is passed, it's going to affect those APS households. And you and I both know that 80% of APS, the children, nearly 80% of the students in APS are near the poverty line. So when there's legislation that affects those households, how can you ensure there's going to be some equity in that? And we've had this conversation, not just with you. This has been an ongoing conversation for yeah. decades. And quite frankly, no one has seemed to really come up with an answer as it relates to APS. Yeah. Well, look, I think the, uh, you know, the school system, uh, candidly, is the canary in the coal mine for the health of your city. Uh, when you have a city that uh, is near the top in terms of child poverty, you have a city that has the widest wage gap in the country. You have a city that uh, it is harder to climb out of poverty, perhaps than anywhere else in the country. Um, your school system is gonna reflect that. And so uh, for us, I think uh, as a city, we've got to get serious about increasing access to affordable housing. We've got to get serious about eliminating food deserts, increasing transportation options, uh, investing in things like universal early uh, childhood education so that uh, the equity gaps, those long-standing persistent issues that have trapped people in poverty for so long, uh, no longer continue to disrupt families. And so, uh, we, we, you know, that's a conversation that uh, this city needs to take seriously, and we need to act urgently to do that. I believe uh, that we have to uh, create a dedicated stream of revenue for affordable housing. I believe we have to have a, an Atlanta housing authority that's actually building um, affordable housing. I believe that we have to have binding community benefits agreements uh, so that all of the developers and development that happens in this city uh, actually ends up benefiting the folks that it's supposed to uh, benefit. Um, and ultimately, I believe we got to create a city uh, that gives folks access to jobs that pay living wages so people can afford to live where they want and, and, and live lives of choice. And we can do all of those things when we uh, when we focus on them and, again, move with a degree of urgency. But do would you admit that then there also needs to be a mending of a fractured relationship, partnership 
between APS and the city of Atlanta? Uh, look, I don't, I will say I, I anticipate that being able to work with, uh, well, rather I should say this, I expect all elected officials uh, to be on the same page and, and ultimately serve uh, the folks that we're supposed to be serving. Uh, what I can tell you is that the relationship between APS and the city government will be the strongest relationship uh, once I'm elected as city council president. I think we've had issues How? in the past around. How are you going to do that? Uh, How can you ensure that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, part of um, what we have to focus on when we think about the relationship between the city government and APS is that the city has a fundamental role to play in actually addressing many of the issues that negatively impact our kids long before they walk into the schoolhouse. The fact of the matter is, is that it's harder for hungry kids to learn. It's harder for kids who lack access to affordable or stable housing uh, to focus on their learning. It's harder for their parents to uh, be involved in their education when they lack jobs that pay living wages, when they lack transportation options. And so the biggest, best thing that the city of Atlanta can do to help APS help our kids is address those issues. It's increasing access to affordable housing. It's eliminating food deserts. It's increasing transportation options. And so by focusing on the things that the city controls uh, that directly impact our kids or negatively impact our kids when they're not doing well, uh, the relationship in and of itself will be a whole lot stronger. I think we've seen uh, across the country uh, cities, uh, uh, when they get it right, they invest in things like universal early childhood education. If you want to have a conversation about public safety, um, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that you both have to have short-term solutions and long-term solutions. And those long-term solutions means investing in early ed. It means investing in stable housing. It means bringing jobs to communities. Those are the issues that the city has to get seriously urgent about um, yesterday. And by doing so, the relationship uh, with APS will be just fine. Let's move into another major issue, obviously, and that is public safety. And so many, there have been many solutions that have been offered by mayoral candidates and folks like you who are running in these seats. So where do you begin, where do you propose to begin to address this issue, Courtney? Yeah, look, I think we've got to do something to, to, to stem the spike in violent crime. I do think we need a, a additional officers on the street. Um, and there are a variety of ways we can do that. One, we need to relieve, um, uh, we need to transfer all of the administrative functions that are currently being performed by sworn officers to other city departments and put those sworn officers back on the street uh, so that they can chase bad guys. Uh, number two, I think we need to increase officer pay so that we're able to retain the officers that we do have. I think we need an officer recapture program that allows us to go back and recapture retired officers. I also think we have to dramatically and immediately expand our PAD, the PAD program, police alternative and diversion program, uh, so that we have a force that is able to deal with quality of life, nonviolent um, calls, and people have another route to go uh, that doesn't lead to um, detention. By doing so, again, you actually free up existing officers to chase bad guys, and you can deal with those quality of life issues. Uh, saying all of that, um, I know and just you know mentioned actually that you can't police your way to public safety alone. We have to get deadly serious about addressing the root causes of crime. Uh, at, the end, the end, at the end of the day, uh, the best crime prevention tool known to man is a high-quality school in every neighborhood and a job that pays a living wage. And so that means the city, again, has to invest in things like affordable housing. It has to ensure that folks have access to meaningful transportation options 
that connects them to job centers. By taking this comprehensive approach, I think we'll have a better, stronger, more equitable city that works for everyone. Are you in favor then, whomever is going to be the new mayor, to maybe do a whole new search for a police chief? Are you in favor of that? I am. I do think um, that we need to do uh, have an aggressive approach to find a, um, a police chief uh, that can meet the needs of um, uh, today's current spike in violent crime, but also do it in a way that focuses on the elements of community policing, that focuses on the elements of ensuring that our police uh, live up to a high standard, uh, ensuring that um, folks are held accountable um, for their actions, um, and ultimately ensuring that folks are sensitive uh, uh, and not reactive and not not reactive um, to the issues that plague our community. Well, when you talk about being reactive to issues that plague the community, the city of Buckhead, that's a movement called the city of Buckhead. Are you in favor of that? Yes or no? No, uh, I think I think that movement, uh, I think a Buckhead uh, city will be bad for Buckhead, bad for the for the city of Atlanta. Uh, the fact about it is that the Buckhead City movement is perhaps the biggest cry for help uh, that we've seen in a long time. But the truth about it is they're crying for the same things in Buckhead that folks in Ben Hill are also crying for. Stronger, cleaner, safer streets, um, a, a proactive city government, a responsive city government, and effective city government. I think by doing those things, by taking care of the basics of government, keeping folks safe, ensuring that trash is collected, uh, ensuring that we're filling potholes and paving sidewalks. I think that we cannot just stem the Buckhead City movement, but we can give folks all across the city what they've been asking for uh, for quite some time. You talked about in terms of dealing with crime, you improve the communities where we see these spikes in crime. But also, let's listen, let's talk about how these communities are changing. Economic development, I've never heard anybody say economic development is a bad thing. But as you know, the pathway to any big developer wanting to come do something in the city of Atlanta has to go through through the city of Atlanta, has to go through city government. You propose some type of checks and balances to make sure that when these developers are coming in, like, for example, whomever is going to buy Mall West End, that there is, one, a binding community agreement, and then also that the, it's transparent in terms of what incentives the city is going to offer so folks don't find out afterwards, so that the communities understand what is happening. Transformation is coming to their community, so they have a right, some would say, to know what's happening. You support proposing some different provisions as it relates to the communities and what they are going to be told and what they're going to get when these big developers come in? Not only do I support it, uh, I've done it. Um, I believe I'm a huge supporter and believer in binding community benefits agreements. Um, I actually think uh, not only do I support it, I actually think we need uh, to completely uh, flip the way in which the city does development. Um, The city has a habit of uh, offering tax incentives, tax abatements, large sums of money to large corporations to either move here, stay here, or build new corporate offices. Uh, I think that needs to, when we do that, uh, one, I think we need to have those binding community benefits agreements in place, but also we need to ensure that we're investing in small local businesses. We need to ensure that we're helping uh, folks who are trying to build affordable housing, folks who have we need to be investing in projects that have tangible, uh, meaningful, uh, and immediate uh, payoff for taxpayers. 
we just closed our latest affordable housing deal. Uh, it will create 350 units of affordable housing, and we did it by working with uh, the Clayton County Housing Authority, uh, the Clayton County Board of Education, uh, as well as the Clayton County Commission. The reason I raise that is because that deal has a binding community benefits agreement. We're going to repave some sidewalks in the area. We're going to improve streetlights, and all of the residents at that affordable housing complex will have access to uh, tons of uh, the wraparound services that our organization, Star C, provides. Uh, additionally, uh, the government entities, albeit the taxpayers, are actually full partners in that deal. So that means when, when the project makes money, the taxpayers make money. We found out a few weeks ago uh, that the proceeds from that deal are going to be used to help 200 kids go off to college by removing financial barriers. I flagged that because not only am I a believer in it, but I've worked to create those meet, those uh, binding community benefits agreements. And it's the same thing I'll do when I'm city council president. How then can you ensure that that, is legis- that can be actually formed into some type of legislation? You won't have a yeah. vote, but how? You... Go ahead. No, I'm just going to say, look, I don't have a vote, but I do have a say. Right. And, and number one, I think we've got to uh, work really, really hard to. Uh, create the relationships among uh, the entire city council. I think we've got to identify the one, two, three, or four issues, uh, equity, affordable housing, public safety being at the top uh, of that list that transcend every single council district. Uh, And then we've got to have tangible projects, uh, I'm sorry, tangible outcomes uh, that uh, the taxpayers can hold us accountable um, for meeting. When we do those things, that's what I call creating that North Star. When we do those things, what you will see is not only a transparent council, but an effective council, because taxpayers will know, here's what we said, and here's ultimately what got done. Uh, and so we're going to get elected officials on the same page. We're going to identify that North Star, and they want to act with urgency to get there. Courtney, define your leadership style. So I am. I would define it uh, uh, three ways. One, uh, courageous. Um, I have the courage to stand by my convictions. Um, I also will say that I'm incredibly effective. Uh, you know, I, I get things done. And so, you know, when I joined the school board, our graduation rate hovered at 50%. Our graduation rate for black men was at right around 45%. Our graduation rate for kids with special needs is at 19%. By the time I left, uh, the graduation rate was a record high for uh, overall for every student ATS, for black men specifically, and we had doubled the number of kids who are graduating with special needs. Um, and so I, I get things done. The last thing I'll say uh, is this. I am incredibly impatient. Uh, I move with a strong degree of urgency. Uh, folks throughout this city have been waiting far too long for affordable housing. They've been waiting far too long for a cleaner or safer street. They've been waiting far too long for effective government. So uh, four years from now, once elected, you'll have a very different city government because people can't afford to wait. Uh, this city is changing every single day. And for folks who are being displaced, it's a terrible thing to feel like a stranger in your own home. And so we're going to get on this affordable housing issue. We're going to get on this equity issue. We're going to ensure that we have a government that is working for people uh, because for far too long we haven't had that. You say all that, and I know folks are listening and they say, well, at the end of the day, too, it also depends on whom is elected mayor. Sure. Well, I, I think this. I think the council is as strong, as, as effective as it wants to be. We have co-equal branches of government, right? And I know we get caught up, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a strong mayor, and oftentimes 
uh, council uh, might defer to the mayor in some issues. That's not necessarily the way government is supposed to work. I believe uh, we're better off when we have a strong, effective, proactive um, uh, city council that is, in fact, working in conjunction with whomever the mayor is to tackle the challenges that our, our citizens face. Uh, I can tell you that uh, among the leading candidates uh, for mayor, I have strong relationships with all of them. I've worked with uh, a number of them in a variety of forms. And so that relationship will exist and it will be strong. You have a strong relationship with all of them? With the leading candidates, I do have a strong relationship uh, um, uh, with many of them. I'll I'll, I'll say that for sure. With many of them? Yes. Any ones that you don't? (laughs) No, look, you know, some of them I don't know. Right. But for the folks that I've had the opportunity uh, to serve in elected office with, I'm confident that uh, it'll be uh, the strongest relationship between the council president and the mayor uh, that we've seen in the last uh, decade or so, for sure. Former Atlanta Public Schools board chair and currently serving as director of community development for the Star Sea program, Courtney English. Thank you so much for taking the time coming on the program and answering the questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rose. And a note of disclosure, WABE's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. Here's the question researchers at the University of Georgia wanted to know. Is there an association between the timing of exposure to and severity of COVID-19 disease in close contacts of what they call index patients with the virus? It's a good question. The findings was this. Individuals with COVID-19 are most likely to spread the virus to close contacts two days before the onset of symptoms to three days after symptoms appear. Also, the risk of transmission is highest when patients had mild or moderate disease severity. And so then another question comes into play, and that's according to a new study by researchers at the University of Georgia. We're going to have more on this. So joining me now is Dr. Ye Shane. He's an associate professor of epidemiology and biostatistics in the College of Public Health at UGA. Professor, thanks for taking the time. Um, Good afternoon, Rose. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. Let's carefully walk our listeners and me through this research step by step. Okay. so first, who were the participants in this study and during what time was it conducted? So the study was conducted in earlier last year from January to August uh, 2020, actually. So this was from uh, East China province in Georgia, uh, where we collected information on all the uh, confirmed COVID-19 cases and also their close contacts in the contact, contact tracing study. How many? How many participants? So there were um, a, a total of over a thousand of uh, in, index uh, patients. Among those, we had contact tracing data of 730 of them. And then out of these 730 patients, uh, we also had close to 9,000 close contacts of theirs. So that was the setting of the study. And Professor, how diverse was this group in terms of age and, 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 other, and other demographics that you all needed? Um, so age was pretty di- di- diverse. Uh, I think the median age is around 40 to 45 years old. Uh, and then uh, male and female are about half and a half, mm-hmm. uh, slightly more males than females. 
um, and they have a variety of occupations and uh, other kind of demographics. What about in terms of any pre-existing conditions that you know of and was that key also in making sure you needed to either filter that out or if it was included in the research you are collecting? Because I imagine that might have played a role in the findings. Absolutely, absolutely. You raise a very good question. Unfortunately, we actually did not collect pre-existing conditions among these people. But actually, these are all the cases, confirmed cases we had in that area during the period. So in some sense, this is a population-based study. So we're not really sampling from, from the population. So we do believe it is at least a representative of the whole province at, at that time during the period. Uh, but I think if we had uh, those pre existing conditions, that would allow us to further look at whether mm -hmm. these are associated with the infection as well. And I want to be clear for our audience, too, these were unvaccinated participants, correct? Exactly. That was earlier 2020. There's no existing vaccination mm -hmm. for, all, for all these people. And that is key also to these findings, correct, Professor? Because if you took this in, in China, you said between January 8th, 2020, and when? Mm -hmm. So it, it is from January uh, the 8th to uh, July the 30th, I think, all the index patients. Uh, and, and then I agree with you, this study currently only applies to those unvaccinated population. And that's why I think the study findings need to be further repeated in a vaccinated mm -hmm. population, for example, right now in the U.S. And also, remember, this was earlier 2020, so all the, all the subjects were infected by the original SARS-CoV-2 uh, strain, not the Delta, Delta variant we are seeing right now in the U.S. So that is another difference I want to point out. That was my next question. It's like you're looking at my mm -hmm. script. I was going to ask you, does it matter okay. the type of coronavirus here you all we're looking at because now we have these variants and, of course, the, the, the recent Delta variant. So I know our listeners might be curious, with these findings, they probably wouldn't apply to, let's say, the Delta variant. Yeah, I think as first we know that they're all SARS-CoV-2. They're just different variants. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think in general, the message still should be consistent. However, we do have this caveat that we already know that the Delta variant is much more contagious than uh, than, than the original version. So we know that it spreads much faster and, and, and potentially could also cause more severe disease. Uh, so we need to be very careful, especially the message on contact tracing. We probably even need to do a better job to suppress the pandemic right now than what we had a year ago or so if we want to uh, really suppress the, the, the epidemic mm -hmm. right now. And also, Professor, I want to go back to just with the participants for a moment. These folks, were they just identified as folks who maybe worked in a healthcare setting or hospitals? Um, you had a cross section of folks working in different sectors. And I imagine that was important, too. Yeah, they, we do have uh, healthcare workers during uh, in, in this uh, uh, cohort. I think they have they have all different occupations. And one thing we did notice is the healthcare workers actually had a slightly lower risk of infection uh, among this contact tracing study. So our takeaway is that potentially that was because they were more cautious. They were wearing face masks and they were having uh, all these PPEs. And that does help to protect them from infections. Um, that's potentially one of the explanations, although we don't have the full picture of why this group tend to have a lower risk. 
Uh, but I think further studies are warranted to, to mm-hmm. look at this population. Well, let's talk about the findings then, because, and, and look, you know, for folks like me who we, we have no idea in terms of what it takes to come up with something like this, but you all say, now, individuals with COVID-19 most likely to spread the virus to close contacts two days before the onset of symptoms to three days after the symptoms appear. How are you all able to conclude that? So basically what we did is we collected all these information from the index patients and their close contacts, Mm -hmm. right? So you know that who actually eventually transmitted to who in this setting. And then we also had information on their exposure contact period. So basically we asked questions to both the index patients and their contacts say, okay, you guys had a contact on which day and is that a multiple contacts or a single contact? If it is multiple contacts from when to when? So with this timing information of exposure, that's critical to understand. So then through those state of the art modeling approaches, we can adjust for this timing in the analysis. So in the end, we were able to find a period of time during which the exposure actually leads to the highest risk of infection. And you all that's a very step-by-step approach. And you also and and on to that point, you all say the risk of transmission is highest when these patients had what you consider mild or moderate disease severity? Yeah, so be careful about this conclusion here. So we actually don't have severe cases in the uh, index patient population. Mm-hmm. So the mild and moderate are already the highest severity levels. So that being said, they were compared with those asymptomatic cases. So basically the symptomatic patients are more likely to transmit the disease, the virus to uh, the other people, basically. So higher level of severity in the symptoms leads to higher risk of transmission, if you want to conclude that way. What does it say to you about being able to come to this findings with cohorts so that, that contracted the virus so early on in this pandemic, and then how it can be useful now? Uh, I think, as I mentioned earlier, firstly, these are all SARS-CoV-2, mm-hmm. and we know that um, they are different than some of the other infectious disease. For example, uh, SARS-CoV, the first generation, SARS-CoV-1, uh, that's almost like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the key difference I would point out here is uh, there's no evidence to show that the original SARS 20 years ago can be transmitted prior to symptom onset. However, through these recent studies, and our study is not the only one, there are other studies to support the evidence that SARS-CoV-2 can be transmitted prior to symptom onset. And I consider it a part of the reason why this disease has spread so widely, mm-hmm. because it's very difficult to prevent if you can transmit the disease even before you show symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. part of the reason, I think. I think that knowledge applies to Delta, applies to other variants as well. So we need to be really making efforts uh, to do better job in contact tracing so that we ask those people you know, who you contact with during the past two days and, and, and the, the, the next three days around symptom onset. And then we can prioritize those close contacts to be further investigated and potentially quarantined so that 
we can contain the disease in an effective way. And so, Professor, as you know, obviously so much is made about getting folks vaccinated. Do you think the message of folks also just getting tested, that's gotten a little lost because that's going to be important in all of this as well? Yeah, I think both are very important. Getting tested so you know that, uh, again, our study would apply to that point of view because once you know that you are infected, you need to be careful about who you contact with, who you are exposed during the period, right? But vaccination also has something uh, that our study also suggests because lower symptoms, lower level of symptoms tend to transmit less, right? Mm -hmm. And then if you are vaccinated, we know that you're more likely to, even if you have a breakthrough case, you're more likely to have a, a, a mild disease. And if you have a mild disease, the, the likelihood that you transmit the disease to the others are also lowered. So in, in that regard, this is also connected to some of our findings. So I think both vaccination and the frequent testing, those are all effective measures to contain the disease for the time being. Professor, I have a question from a listener who wants to know is wants to know if in that population that you all were doing your research, did anyone die? Did anyone lose their life to the virus? No, fortunately, I think because of the effective contact tracing they performed, most of the uh, close contact they were able to identify were early in the stage. And we did have severe cases among those close contacts. But fortunately, none of these patients eventually actually died. And then finally, Professor, as we wrap up, you say, look, now let's take this even further. And now we need to use this study with vaccinated folks. Yeah. Um, I think uh, during uh, the more recent outbreaks, we have more and more people who are already vaccinated and we start to observe these breakthrough cases. And it's still unclear how uh, these kind of contact tracing applies to these vaccinated population. Uh, are they at a lower risk of transmission? Um, are they have, because of they have a lo lower level of symptoms, uh, is that going to be easier uh, for them to recover? All these questions are answered. I think with a population level uh, contact tra tracing study, we will be able to uh, tackle this problem uh, um, better, hopefully, in the next uh half a year or so. And Professor, I, I always enjoy, well, I enjoy, but I always, this question is always interesting to me in terms of the answer. And that is people, folks in your field, I mean, you're an epidemiologist and you work in mm -hmm. biostatistics. What has really been unique or what stands out to you that's so extraordinary about this coronavirus? Um, there's just so much we don't know about this coronavirus. And uh, one thing actually uh to me, it is a big shock is that how uh, people over the world are trying to perform all kinds of research around this coronavirus. Uh, this was never the thing for any of the previous infectious disease that has spread it, uh, uh, globally. Uh, even for um, SARS, the first, uh, the original SARS 20 mm -hmm. years ago, we never saw such kind of scientific research related, uh, devoted to the field. And even with these kind of effort, I still feel like there's a lot unknown about this coronavirus. And this is certainly a deadly disease. And we got to do better, both in research, both in public health measures to help uh, and us to be in a better position to, to, to fight the, the dead of the disease, I want to say. Well, goodness, I've heard that so many times. Dr. Ye Shane is an associate professor of epidemiology and biostatistics in the College of Public Health at the University of Georgia, and we will have a link to the study and the research on our website as well. Dr. Shane, thank you so much for the conversation. Fascinating. Thank you. 
Thank you. Take care and stay healthy. You too. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other program. You know what to do. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights again at 7 p.m. in our rebroadcast as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like because it's always there and it's going to be free. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.